Colossians chapter 4. So uh, Linda earlier said that she talked to some people, said, you need to come this week because we'll be talking about prayer. And I said, you're reading ahead. That's good. So, uh, <laughs> which uh, actually it, it is a good thing to do. I'm not going to tell you guys to do it, but uh, it is good if we're going, if we're in a book, we're just going verse by verse. You could read that book at you know, during the week, um, we will be starting. Uh, let's see. Today is chapter four, verses two through six, and then next week is seven on to to eighteen, I believe, and that's it. And I can safely say that will be it because I've already finished the prep on that sermon as well. I spent Friday and Saturday on today and next week. They're done, so uh, we will be finished with Colossians after next Sunday. Uh, and then we'll have, I'll do something topical for, and then first, first week of October st- still as planned. We'll, we'll get in the uh, Galatians, which bless you, which will be really good. Uh, Galatians. Oh, I don't know what to say about it. It's a great like opus on justification of faith. Um, <laughs> it's full of grace. So you, if you know me, we're big on grace. I'm big on that message of grace. I believe that we're eternally secure and we are justified by faith alone, through Christ alone. And that's the big message of Galatians. And it's really good. I'm going to learn a lot of stuff in there. We're going to be in there for like 28 weeks, <laughs> which is a long time. But that's the way to do it. Um, so once we start, you guys can start reading Galatians if you want to. And you don't have to just go in the sections I, I do. Galatians is six chapters. Um, you can easily read it uh, once a week or once a day, however you want to. And then you'll just be very familiar with the text. And then when I hit these, those texts, you're going to know where I'm at, what we're talking about, and then you'll get better insight on it. So uh, it's going to be good, I think. So it's going to be a fun book to go through. So today it is prayer. Uh, it's prayer and uh, evang- evangelizing as well. So Paul uh, has given us a series of commands, right? This is what we've been going through in, in all three, all right? Or, uh, well, he's laid out a bunch of stuff, our union with Christ and then these commands uh, uh, in chapter three and all that. Uh, two believers that's regarding family life in the last couple of units that we've been in, right? Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives. Children uh, are to obey their parents. Parents are not to exasperate their children. Uh, these slaves, or today, employees are to obey their uh, masters or employers, right? And, and then the employers are to treat employees fairly, all right, so the only way we'll be able to live these out is to be dependent on God to give us strength and the ability to do so. And that, de- that dependence is manifest, really, in our relationship. And prayer is a big part of it. I could have done a whole just sermon on prayer, but we're going to go through two through six. Um, but... You, you, could, you could have several sermons on prayer. I mean, it, there's so much about it, all right? But we should devote time to prayer, all right? So we need to think, though, of the last unit. Thinking of the last unit as a whole, which was the household, 
Let us not forget the overall audience is the church in general, okay? He's writing to the church in Colossae, all right? So Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which... Uh, is how I ought to speak. All right, so that's an interesting one for me at the end. All right, so this is part of God's will for us, all right, to pray. To continue, he says continue, so he's assuming or he knows they have been praying and steadfastly. So everybody knows what prayer is, right? We know this. (laughs) Other religions have prayer, right? Uh, Everybody knows what prayer is. Uh, Most of us do it. Even the unbeliever in a desperate situation is going to pray, right? Uh, They want help. They want God to intervene or a higher being to intervene for them. And if God is willing to help them, then they're willing to receive that help in that moment. So we all know what it is, all right? But do we have, you know, a biblical definition of it? That's what we need to get to. The thing is, though, that, see, prayer is Christian-specific, all right? It really is. It's our right that's been given to us by God as Christians to go to him in prayer. It it is for us. All right. Uh, That's to say that only Christians know about prayer because we know the power of God and we know Jesus. All right. So biblically, this privilege of prayer is limited to the members of God's family, all right? These are the children of God who believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins, right? So prayer then is limited to those who enjoy a family relationship with God. So this means that of all the people who pray, the only ones who have the right to pray are those who are members of his family. But don't hear me wrong. God hears and sees everything, right? So he hears the unbeliever's prayers as well, okay? I'm just saying the the Christian right, the privilege has been bestowed upon us to be able to boldly approach his throne, right? So it is biblically, it seems to be limited to those who truly know him. It doesn't mean some guy who's never heard the gospel prays out to God because he just knows there's a God and God doesn't, won't hear him because of that. It doesn't mean that. So I don't want you guys to mishear me. Okay, so while prayer does involve us coming to God with many things, confession, thanksgiving, and praise, the more specific answer to what is prayer is that it's asking God for stuff. It's asking God for things. Right now, I'm not going to derail here and say it's for you to ask for money or fancy material things. Right. It should be clear, though, that through the Bible that people prayed for provision. They prayed for guidance and they prayed for help. And God's God wills that you pray. He wills that you ask him for things and 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 not just wills it, but he delights in it. Because it comes from the very nature of who God is. He is love, right? He's not just love. He's many things, but he is love. Therefore, he's a giver. 
He's a giver because he is self-sufficient, right? This is why he gives. He doesn't need anything. He delights to overflow and show us his fullness and his strength and his wisdom. All right, so you go through the Old Testament and all that. You see Abraham, Joseph, David, and Daniel. They all offer these wonderful examples of believers bringing needs and praise before God. Prayer was a priority to them, all right? Uh, David's a great example of a man who had devoted himself to pray, uh, prayer and praise to God. Uh, we also see that Jesus gave priority to it, right? If Jesus prayed, <laughs> I mean, I've always said that. I've always looked and been like, man, if Jesus prayed, that means we should pray, right? If Jesus was doing it, he, he devoted uh, time and he gave it priority, Paul's letters are filled with prayers too. We've seen this. So Paul tells the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer. And devote means to persist in something. All right, so the instructions are beyond praying only when times are bad, but rather it's a continuous, intense effort, all right, to pray. And then he says, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving. So this is being vigilant, and this is working against distractions. How many of you start to pray and you start to think, did I turn the, you know, whatever off? Did I do this? Did I, oh, I need to go do that, right? <laughs> it, it happens, right? It happens all the time. Uh, so this is what the, he's getting at here, right? Uh, be vigilant and work against distractions that we need to guard against anything that might weaken our effectiveness, in our prayer. And this thanksgiving, all right? With thanksgiving. What Paul is saying here is that instead, instead of crying out to God in your difficulty, instead of with doubt, with questioning, or with a dissatisfaction of how your life is going, any type of discontent or anything like that, or even blaming God, cry out to God with thanksgiving. Why? Right? That's like, Why? Because if you have a grateful heart, your prayers will be right, right? So prayer is this declaration of our dependence upon God as our Father. It's us saying that we need you, right? We need your help here. We need guidance. We need this wisdom. We need direction. We need your word to, to be highlighted to us for, for this thing. We need you. We are solely dependent on you. Right? There's many times, and I can speak for myself, that I just go on, go along life doing things in my power as I could do them until the going gets tough. And then I, it's out of my hands. I can't do it anymore. And then, I'm, then I go to God. Now, I don't know if anything would be different if I had been continually praying the whole time. I know it would, would, my emotions and my feelings of the situation would be different, though. I wouldn't be so <gasps> stressed out, freaking out about stuff, probably. Why? Because I would have peace. I would know that I am dependent upon God and that it's not me. It's not my strength. It's not my power. It's His through the Holy, Sp Holy Spirit that's, that I'm walking by in these situations, all right? Even in the good times, all right? So it is saying that we need you. And then Paul turns the, the, the reader's attentions then to, to, to a need of his own. And he, he asks that 
they pray for him. So he's calling uh, for the Colossians to be involved in this work themselves. Paul desired that his labors would be a part of their prayer lives. So he requests prayer for open doors, open doors for the word, and in clarity in speaking the word. Now that's the part that I thought was interesting. That I may make it clear, he says in verse 4, which is how I ought to speak. He wants to pr- He's saying pray that God opens doors for me and pray that I know how to actually deliver the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul. <laughs> right? That's interesting to me. Uh, so Paul, Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter. He's dictating this letter. And he doesn't ask them to pray for his release. Doesn't, doesn't ask him for that. Instead, he asks for prayer for the word to go forth. So he's asking that, that people will pray that God to open the hearts of those around him in prison, whether it's the fellow prisoners or the guards. That doors of opportunity would be open for him to preach to them. And this is where... This is where most people, I think, in going through this, they make a big deal out of Paul being in prison and doing ministry, right? Because it's also of of importance to point out, though, that God opening the door because it's only God who opens them, right? They're saying he's in prison and he's doing ministry, but he's praying, hey, guys, pray, pray that God opens the door to allow me to do ministry here. God opens closed doors for us to share the message of salvation with other people. All right? Which is the next part of the text, the mystery of Christ. Now, we've gone over this. You could find this uh, text again in Ephesians chapter 3. But the mystery, the only thing that had not been uh, revealed through uh, the, the prophets and whatnot through the Old Testament was the mystery is that Jew and Gentile are brought together now in a new man, Jesus, right? Known as the body, which is the church, right? And Paul closes that uh, verse three saying, it was for the sake of the gospel that he was imprisoned, right? And back in, in Ephesians. So in Jerusalem, at the end of his third missionary journey, Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the area of the temple that was forbidden to them, right? He was rescued from this angry crowd by the Romans and eventually, uh, and eventually sent by them to Felix. He was the governor of Judea. And after being in custody for two years, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen, appealed his case to Caesar. This is in Acts 25. And during his voyage to Rome, he was shipwrecked Right with a, this violent storm, and, and the book of Acts closes with Paul under house arrest in Rome, and it's on their dime because they're housing him, and people are coming to him, and he's declaring the kingdom of God. So he's he's got housing, <laughs> prison. Not, sometimes prison was really really bad. I mean, in the depths and like basement nasty stuff like you see in movies, and then other times like in Paul here. He's been in bad prisons, but here in the last two years, he's got this housing, he's got this setup thing going on. I'm not saying it was all cozy and good, but people could just come 
and, and visit. You could hang out. You could stay with them. They could come and go. And so he, he's the Roman, Roman Empire is paying for his imprisonment while people come to him and he gets to teach them about the kingdom of God, right? Also, he was shipwrecked when I said that. People say we can control the storms and the weather today, but Paul didn't keep that from happening, did he? <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. Uh, so it was during this period, though, that I um, just mentioned that, that he wrote Colossians. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, and uh, Philemon. All right. So he also evangelized those who came in co- he came in contact with, okay, whether it was the mob in Jerusalem, that's Acts 22, Felix, that's in Acts 24, uh, Herod, Agrippa, Acts 26, Roman soldiers and uh, Philemon 1, and members of Caesar's ho- household, which is also Philemon, or members of the, the Rome's, Rome's Jewish community. All these things, Acts, that's in Acts 28. So there's all these bits and pieces here that you can put together and see what he was doing. So Paul is setting uh, in chains and he's asking the Colossians to pray that, that God would give him an opportunity to preach the gospel. So we ought not to miss the necessity of prayer in the spread of the gospel because the two go together, right? And then his, his request, uh, he says to pray that he would be able to clearly explain this when God opens the door. And that's why I keep saying it's Paul, but it's Paul. <laughs> it shows me how much Paul was dependent on God. The reason why Paul was to have these things to say and preach and to have written down for us is because of God. Paul wanted to expose the gospel in a way that people could see it and hear it clearly. He wanted to make it plain. We overcomplicate stuff, don't we? <laughs> Man. So Paul, Paul knew how to speak. He knew how to speak. He was, what, what is it, three years in Ephesus? You know, teaching every day? He knew how to speak, yet he requested their prayers for him that he might clearly proclaim the truth of the gospel. So it's not... It's not enough to just have an open door, right? There has to be a clear message. Paul knew the gospel. He certainly knew it, but only the Holy Spirit can make it known to those who are are blind or deaf to it. All right, so Paul requests prayer for an open door for the gospel and clarity in sharing it, all right? So the next two verses then are specifically directed towards the believer's evangelism. Verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So Paul exhorts them in their own opportunities of open doors and speaking the gospel. All right. So aside from the fact that it pleases the Lord, who is sanctifying you as a Christian, there are outsiders. There are unbelievers, right? They're watching your every move, too. Those that are, we're close to, right? Walking in the daily lifestyle, uh, walking is, those, the, he says walk, walking is the daily lifestyle of a believer, all right? Someone, someone's always watching, they're always waiting to see what you're going to say or, or what, what you do and then call it out and say you're a hypocrite. 
basically, right? I mean, come on. Even if you're, especially if you're new Christian, uh, they're going to be like, ah, it's going to take long for him to go back to normal. They're, and they don't understand the word hypocrite. They don't understand the growth that it takes and time that it takes for someone to be renewed and transformed. All right? It's a lesson for us all, too. Believers, people that have been believers for 20 years, and then you just hear that they did something. <gasps> I thought he was a Christian. Probably had a moment of anger. That's okay. All right? We ought not be completely shaken by these things. <laughs> but that's how it seems. People are always watching. I've told the story before of Grandpa, I think, when he worked uh, in the... Uh, it was here on Petroff Road, meatpacking plant, huh? Petroffs, he worked at Petroffs, he was cutting a hog or something, slid his hand open or something like that, right? Just blood all over the place. And everybody, everybody stopped working in the whole factory. And to come, to rush to his aid, that's what he thought, Right? And because as they were getting him ready and getting him loaded up to go to, to the doctor or the hospital or whatever, he's like, man, you guys really care, care a lot about me. Everybody stopped working. They were like, well, we all sort of had, when we heard that you had cut your hand open, we all started having a bet on if you were going to cuss or not. <laughs> Something like that, right? They wanted to come and see if the preacher would cuss. <laughs> They didn't care that he was hurt. <laughs> they just wanted to see what his reaction would be. <laughs> and that's the point. Like, here. Right? Everyone's watching. It's okay, though, right? It's all right if they're watching. It's okay. All right? But you also have to understand, someone around you may be watching you for anything that you do in your life that might give them light for their own struggles through the darkness of life that they are living without Jesus. They may have seen difference in you. They know that you've been changed. So they're watching you closely to see if this thing is real, right? So Paul uses the word wisdom to convey this whole, the whole content of the believer's walk. This is Paul's fourth use of this word in, in this epistle. And if you want to know how to walk in wisdom toward outsiders and then to win people to Jesus, then you need to know where to turn for wisdom, right? And Paul gave an essential answer earlier in this letter. Uh, that just a couple of weeks ago in, in uh, uh, 3.16 about letting the word of Christ dwell within you, right? None of us are spiritually wise by nature. We're foolish until we are transformed by this renewing of our minds that continually takes place. And Paul says that happens by the word of Christ rich, richly dwelling in us. All right, And what we are seeing here is that Christian living comes down to prayer and to knowing God's word. Paul asks for prayer, and then he shows us that doors open and eternal, internal resources rise in answer to prayer. Then he says, walk in that, especially to those who are outside of the walls of the church. The goal here is the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation to the world. All right. So walking in wisdom means that you are consciously applying the truth of the gospel 
to every portion of your life, right? And that's why he's addressed household lives and then gone into this, right? It's, it's at home. It should start at home. It shouldn't start here. It should start at home. And then it starts to spread. And it's, again, it's, it always, to me, it always comes back to the parables of the kingdom. It's like the mustard seed, like the leaven and all that. It's going to grow. It's going to consume. It starts to spread and it starts to take over. The gospel, God's kingdom, will eventually fill the earth. doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved, but that's what Jesus said in the parables. <clears throat> so... We, we, we apply the truth of the gospel to all parts of our life then, right? And as we live out ex, exhortations to the family, our walk will rise or, or raise, actually, all sorts of, of kinds of questions. As wives are submitting, thinking of the last section, as wives are submitting, as husbands are loving, children obeying, parents not provoking, employees obeying, and employers treating their employees fairly, we're preaching a sermon without words is what's going on, right? And then the outcome of all that is that it opens the door for words to teach the gospel. So we make the best use of our time then, as he says, to do. This refers to a period of possibilities upon which you should take action. A better translation, translation is to seize the opportunity. All right? And this is still verse 5. Make, um, making the best use of time. Seize the opportunity. All right? So what is the opportunity here? Right? It's the decisive point in our life, the Christian life, stirring up a time of witness, of evangelism, of teaching the gospel. Right? Paul said, seize that moment. Don't let it pass by. Paul's talking about evangelism, whether we want to call it the Christian witness or uh, door knocking, whatever. <laughs> a door will literally open then if you do that, but that's a cheesy joke. <laughs> but this is evangelism. He's saying evangelize. And I believe this is saying that the quality of your life is the platform of your personal relationship. Your personal testimony. All right? By the kind of life you live, you are building this platform on, on, on which what you say, that how you act, how you react, is made believable to others around you. Paul is stressing character here. Your character. And then he talks about their message or their presentation. In verse 6, let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. All right, gracious, we should know this is grace. Our speech is to be pleasant at the very least. All right, that doesn't mean that we are always to be agreeable or pleasing, right? Remember, they're combating false teachers here as well in the early part of this letter. What it is saying, though, is that whatever we say, it needs to be characterized by the grace of Christ. Should be an emphasis there on grace. Our words have a lot of power. We know this. Our words have the power to build up. They have the power to tear down. They can hurt or they can heal. Our words have the power to communicate the message of Jesus effectively when we speak with grace. 
All right. So how does grace get into your speech then, right? Again, it means you're reflecting Christ in how you talk. And then it should be seasoned with salt. Now, in, in ancient Greek usage, salt would often refer to a person's wittiness. Right? Now, we know salt pres preserves, but it also was their wittiness. It, it's not only to be gracious, but to also have an effect. Salt can sting when rubbed into a wound. All right? <laughs> we have to think about that. We always talk about just the good part of it. <laughs> It can sting when you rub it into a wound. It, it can prevent corruption. Believer's speech, a believer's speech, though, should act as a purifying influence. It's rescuing the conversation from any evil that often ends up engulfs it, engulfing it, right? Salt adds flavor, and the speech of the new man should add uh, a charm or wittiness uh, to the conversation. So Paul explains that you are to watch your behavior, seize opportunities for responding with truth, and guard your conversation so that it resembles the gracious talk of Christ and not the world. And in doing so, you'll have this, you'll, you will have individualized opportunities for speaking the gospel so that you may, you may know how you ought to answer each person then, right? So the, the Greek brings out this emphatic sense here that the Christian is the one who is to be ready to respond properly. All right, so it's office talk, school talk, personal problems, world events, and politics, even. Yes, politics, <laughs> which most people don't like. No, the two need to stay. They're like, yes, you have to, yes, even politics, be ready to answer with a biblical worldview. All right. Study the word, devote yourself to the apostles' teachings, fill your mind with the truth of the gospel. You see it from every angle uh, as possible that you can, even systematically going through books of the Bible, then can help to solidify your grasp of the word so that in the time of the opportunity, you'll know precisely how to respond. All right. Some people would call that apologetics. And it, it is. So the, the, the gospel, uh, you're responding with some way of the, of the word of God or with the gospel. His emphasis here is the proclamation of the gospel, the mystery of Christ. So the gospel is not, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. Nowhere in scripture it, 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 are we told to ask Jesus into our hearts. Nor does it say that Jesus comes into our hearts. What, what we are told, though, is to believe in Christ with our hearts. And remember, hearts is usually our mind. It's the Hebrew mind. The heart refers to the thinking process. We are called to believe. A person's also is not just saved by praying the sinner's prayer. Now, I'm not... Want anybody to doubt their salvific experience here at all? I'm just saying we have turned it into these one, two step, like, you know, uh, th this thing. Hey, have you heard of God? Do you know Jesus? You're a sinner. You want to pray? Okay, say this. You're good. And then we come back with, you know, we need to be able, he's saying, know what to say, how to say it, speak it with clarity. All right. We are saved by faith alone. In Christ alone, and in order to believe in Him, you need to know who He is, what He has done. 
right? Before you can believe, you have to have knowledge. So you can't believe what you don't know, right? So we cannot explain the gospel clearly if it is muddy in our minds. That's why we've gone over the gospel here before. So what is it? I want to ask you, test you guys. <laughs> hmm? Love? Love? Love is certainly included with the gospel. Love and grace. God's love. Agape love, yes. That's part of it. You're right. Say, say, say a friend from high school has just recently found you online. They message you. They want to know uh, how they can have eternal life. Right? Okay. Then you would respond, all men are sinners. <laughs> right? The wages or payment of that sin is death, which is separation from God, which results in eternal death. All right? So we have Romans 3.10 and Romans 6.23. Christ died for our sins. His death was substitutional. It's Romans 5.8. And you must personally trust what Christ did for a payment for your sins. You must trust His work alone to save you and forgive you. And that's it. John 3.16. Alright, there it is. I'm certainly loving there. And grace. And mercy. <laughs> and all of that that's, that. that's it right there. Heard somebody the other day say... If you've sinned one time, you're now in need of a Savior. That's not true. You're born a sinner. right? You were born under the federal headship of Adam. You were born a sinner. You need saved. You don't sin once and become a sinner. But that's a trick question, remember? How many sins does it take you to be a sinner? Zero, because you're born one. <laughs> right? All right, so all men are sinners. The wages of sin is death. Right? You're, you're spiritually dead. To remain spiritually dead your whole life, you will end up eternally dead. Christ died for our sins. That death was substitutional in your place. And you must personally trust what Christ did for that, the payment of your sins. And you trust His work alone. That's it. Nothing you can do will save you. Nothing you can do is going to merit anything. You trust His work alone to save and forgive you. So Paul wanted people to pray that he would speak in the way he ought to speak as God wanted him to speak in proclaiming those truths of the gospel. That should be our prayer too. That's, that's my application for today then. That should be our prayer too. So if you don't know how to pray, because a lot of people, no, no, I don't want to pray. I don't know how to pray. It's okay. You just talk. It's fine. I understand not praying, like not wanting to pray in public. I understand that. You can just talk to God. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be any like, and, and thy Lord, I come to you with my robes torn and ash on my head. You don't have to do that. <laughs> like, like most of the time, I'm just like, Jesus, like, just thank you. I think like I hugging Ezra yesterday. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for my son. I'm honored that you had chose me to be his father. Thank you, Jesus. And that's that's me just praying, giving thanks. Right. So, so if you don't know how to pray, just pray for open doors. Pray that God fills you with his word so you know how to speak properly. You ask for courage. You ask for strength. You ask God for clarity. And that would also mean clarity for your understanding on what the word means as well. Study the word so the word of Christ dwells within you richly 
So you will be filled with the wisdom of Jesus and then walk in that. Walk in it. And then you'll find the words to outsiders and, 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 and they will be filled with grace. And you'll, you'll find the words for at home, for work, and for whatever else you're doing. And I, I believe that's what he's getting at here. And, that, and that's, that's how I, I, I see it. So are there, are there any questions? Any disagreements? Any comments? <laughs>